Well, this is our second message. It's going to be short, just to let you know that. About 10 minutes, can be 10 or 12, 15 minutes here. Um, if you think about it, for most people, if you're not a horribly broken person, and if you are, I, we pray for you. I, uh, if, you're, if you're just one of the normal people, though, one of the things I believe that every heart longs for is to be loved. I don't think anybody would argue with that. But not just the, the, the grandma love or, you know, how you love your latest Christmas present or not that kind of love. We're, we're talking a very radically different, different kind of love. I think the human heart longs to be loved with an enduring, everlasting, unbreakable, unfailing, steadfast, unconditional, and utterly loyal kind of love, right? That's what we all want. We want that from our spouses. We want that from our friends, and we want it from our kids. We don't always get it, but we want that. that we, we all just, we, we want to be loved with just a, a crazy, over-the-top, are you kidding me, kind of love. And whether that's a spouse or, again, friends, neighbors, family, that we, we all have that just basic, basic need Right, the kind of love where if you had to remind somebody, say mom or dad, right, but you promised, right, you could bet your life that whatever was promised would be delivered, right? That kind of love. Problem is from early childhood, clear through adulthood, that kind of love is often defined and measured and even challenged by our ability and even our desire to keep our promises, right? You promised rings throughout every house, and I hope it doesn't ring out on Christmas morning, but I, boy, I wanted to say that a few times to my parents. Um, as a child growing up, the value and the power of the words you promised, they begin to take a beating, right? Very, very early on, you promised that was powerful. That got mom and dad to give you what you wanted, but then they caught on, right? You promised, again, begin to take a beating. Promises were not very enduring, they were very breakable, and they certainly came with conditions, at least with my parents. It usually had to do with my room, right, or not mistreating my little brothers and sisters. There were always conditions to the promises. And our brothers and sisters out on the playground, out on the block, loyalty meant absolutely nothing, right? Shifting alliances over the most petty things, right? Your best friends one day... And somebody says something, and you're like mortal enemies the next, and then a week later, you're best friends again. Shifting alliances, promises that I will be your buddy, and I got your back, not so much, right? If you're, you're, if you're young, you got brothers and sisters, those are not very powerful words you promised. And then around junior high school, I think for a lot of folks, maybe folks here in this room, the words lost even more power and value when their parents' marriage broke up. And it didn't matter how much, how long, how loudly they screamed, but you promised. Right? Somebody went away and didn't come back. And then God gets involved in the conversation. That just kind of messes up everything. I don't know if you've ever had the joy of having a drunk teenager call you at one in the morning and ask, with all seriousness that a drunk person could come up with, Right? If they, if they promise to stop drinking, this is a teenager, and I'm hearing this at one in the morning, if they promise to stop drinking, would Jessica like him? Would God make Jessica like him? That, that, was, that was his strategy, 
Like, I promise you, God, I will stop drinking, but make that girl like me. It's like, okay, you know, God doesn't work like that. And it was a weird conversation. I don't need to go into that. The ancient Israelites were no different. Promises were important. Promises were very, very important to them. Promises meant something. But you didn't break promises in the Bible era in that culture. But God's promises are a little bit different. In fact, they're quite a bit different. So I want to look at what God's promises and how his promises are so much different than ours. Your mom and dad, your neighbors, your kids' promises, which are basically worthless. I want to illustrate. This is Psalm 85. I'm going to start 1 through 3. It says, You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. This first, the first part of this lament, like many laments like it, it's called the buttering up stage, right? It's got a Greek word, I don't remember it, but it's the buttering up stage. And I know that sounds terribly manipulative, but why do we do it? We, we all do it. The whole world does this. Why do we do it? Because it works, right? It, it, it simply works. Right? When you remind people just how patient and how loving and, and how forgiving, you know, and, and anything that you're looking to get out of them, if you remind them that that's a big part of their character, self-fulfilling prophecy kind of takes over, and, and, and they begin to lean into what you're reminding them they already have. Right? You can even be more forgiving and more patient. The crazy thing about this is it works in two directions. Both the speaker and the listeners are encouraged to embrace the prophecy, whatever it was. You're being smart or wise or patient or forgiving, whatever it was. Both the listener and the speaker embrace it. Like if I tell you that you're often regularly enough, that you're awesome, you're amazing, I just keep telling you, eventually we're both going to believe it, right? Even if you're a basket case, right? If I say it often enough, we both kind of lean into it and, and believe it. It's just the craziest thing about human nature. And that's what's going on in this passage right here. By way of this lament, God is reminding the people just how faithful he really is in case they had forgotten, right? Despite current circumstances that might argue otherwise, he is loving and faithful. And the lament ends, and I'm going I'm to do something strange here. I'm going to show you the first part of the lament, I'm going to show you the end of the lament, and I'm going to sandwich Look at the sandwich in between, because that's where we're going to kind of spend a moment. Laments end, just like many of these type of laments do, with a somewhat, somewhat ridiculous, over-the-top, are-you-kidding-me display of faith in God's salvation, right? That God would save them, God's salvation. This is the end of the psalm, verses 8 through 13. It says this, I will listen to what the God, the Lord, says. He promises peace to his people. Now, watch very closely. Peace has a condition, and his love doesn't have a condition. I just want to make that very, very clear here. God's love is not conditional, but his blessings are. His blessings are conditional. This is exactly what he's saying here. I will listen to what, the God, what God the Lord says. Here's what he says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. A little, little nuance there that you got to catch. Then he expands on that, but let them not turn to folly. Don't be playing games with your heavenly Father, right? He loves you, but don't play games with that love. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, not those who play games with him. I keep adding just a little bit here. That his glory may dwell in our land. 
Again, super important. Peace is conditional as love is unconditional. I know sometimes you feel like God can't love me because my life doesn't seem to be blessing. Well, that's kind of on you, but he loves you desperately. And I'll tell you what, the moment you turn to him, he's going to begin to bless you and your life like you have never seen before. But you've, you've got a part to play. He's playing his part, and he never stops. We are, we're hot and cold, right? You know that. We're kind of hot and cold. That's, that's just the way it is. I'm going to continue reading verse 10 and 12. Love and faithfulness meet together, right? When God's unfailing love meets our on-again, off-again faithfulness, something amazing happens. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. This isn't a paraphrase. This is God's word straight out. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven, right? When we do our part, when we are in a right standing with God, man, he just turns on the faucets of blessings and, right, righteousness kisses peace. That's a wild phrase. Let me keep reading this verse 12, 13. The Lord will indeed give what is good. Our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Again, our faithfulness or righteousness, is the way he's phrasing it here, triggers his blessings. Again, it doesn't trigger his love. His love has always been there from the very, very beginning. Don't ever question that. But his blessings, you got to play your part. And again, then sandwiched between the, you know, promise, remember when you promised all those things and then actually delivered it, right? Sandwiched between that, verses 1 through 3, and, then the, and, and the promises at the end of peace and God's presence and great harvest, sandwiched in between that is the prayer for help. And in that prayer for help is the key to the Israelites' somewhat ridiculous, over-the-top, are-you-kidding-me display of faith in God's love. Right, the key, and that's going to be a key for us too. What gives the Israelites this crazy kind of faith and the love of God? And, and we sit in this 21st century and we question his love. Verses 4 through 7, it says this, Restore us again, God our Savior. Turn us. Right? We learned that last week. Turn us, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all the generations? Will you not revive us again? You notice that word, again. You've done it in the past. You were so faithful in the past. We have so many stories of you being faithful in the past. Please, please just do it one more time. One more time. And you look at this phrase, this whole passage there, four through six, and you think, is there love between these people and this God? Have you never been angry at somebody you loved? Right? So God can get angry at his people that he loves too. Right? There's, there's a little bit of anger here. But I think we all recognize you can love somebody and be really, 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 really angry with them and still just have overwhelming love for them. In fact, that's what drives the anger, I think. If you didn't love them, you wouldn't care. It wouldn't hurt you as much. But when somebody you love and professes to love you, and they hurt you, that's rough. I'm going to keep reading. Verse 7, here's the key. Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Basically, show us your hesed, Lord. This is a a Hebrew word, hesed. You probably already guessed what it means. It means God's enduring, everlasting, unbreakable, unfailing, steadfast, unconditional, utterly loyal kind of love. Right? Show us that, God. 
Don't show us your anger anymore. Show us your unfailing, never-ending, amazing, utterly royal, loyal kind of love. Please show us that because we, we know for a fact it's there. You've shown it before. Right? The kind of love where if you had to remind somebody, let's say God, right? But you promised. You could bet your life that whatever was promised was going to happen. Right? That's, the kind of, that's what said means. Dan Boone, president of Trebekah Nazarene University, writes this, his definition of said. It's the behavior that one person has the right to expect of the other in light of promises that were made. Now, again, you think about your human friends, and that definition takes a little bit of a beating, right? We know in our lives that promises aren't kept, right? We know people want to keep them, I think, but many times they just don't, and it hurts. Hesed is a, is a covenantal term, somewhat like a contract. It conveys the idea of loyalty and obligation, again, much like a marriage, right? Applied to God, it implies the obligation assumed by God through His covenant with Israel to act on Israel's behalf, who is totally, 100%, just like us, dependent on Him. We cannot survive without His help, without His love. We cannot survive, right? We live we're walking dead the way the Bible describes us. Without God in our lives, we're walking dead. A couple keys here. Israel understood has said the covenant to be enduring, everlasting. Second key is though God remained committed to filling his obligations, we can't demand them. Like, yes, Lord, you promised. We can bring that up and we can remind him, but we cannot demand from him. All we can do is hope and pray that he will bless us. Right? You don't have God over a barrel head just because you're in a good relationship with him. Just like you don't have your friends over a barrel head if you have good friends. Right? You don't treat them that way. You don't call them like that. Essentially, the ancient Israelites were reminding God that he had made some pretty good promises, some pretty huge promises, and he had sealed those promises in a covenant in blood. Right? Here's what that ancient, very serious covenant looks like. God had just promised Abraham many descendants that they would bless all the nations and that they would inherit the land that they were right then at that moment looking at. Hence the promised land, right? You get that phrase there. But Abraham's shocked. He's like, wow, that's a lot of stuff. And he says this to the Lord. Abram said, he gets his name changed to Abraham just in case anybody's wondering who in the world this Abram is. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, how can you know that I will gain, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord told him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, immediately, Abram knows what's going on, what God has in mind. See, Abrams have seen these kind of covenants made between warring parties, warring nations, warring villages, towns, and there was a way that they could come to it under agreement, and this, was, this is what this covenant looked like when two people who weren't getting along, they want to, they want to get along. So they do this, this covenant. So without instructions that we know of, they're not there in the Bible, Abraham, Abram, excuse me, he just starts cutting them all in half. Again, the Lord God just said, bring me these three, but Abraham knew, Abram knew what was up. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other, the birds. However, he did not cut in half, and I don't know why he didn't cut them in half eventually. In the law in Leviticus, you're not supposed to cut the birds in half. I don't know if the Lord kind of preemptively told him that. It's not there in Scripture. 
Um, but the very, very fascinating here, I do want to stop for a moment here. The birds represent the sacrifice allowed for the poor. If you read your book of Leviticus, I know it's a favorite book of yours. When you go through all of the sacrifices, right, if you're wealthy, if you've got money, you had to bring a, a bull, right, some, some more valuable animals, four-legged animals. But if you were poor, if you didn't have any of that stuff, right, you could bring the pigeon or the turtle dove. And the priests, it says that the Jews, the priests really struggled with this sacrifice, because they were used to serving the wealthy. And here, in this moment, they struggled with, and this was a well-known fact, they struggled with serving the poor. And this was God's way, according to tradition, this was God's way of saying, look, I don't care if you're rich, I don't care if you're poor, your service is equal to me if you've got a heart behind it. Right? The rich don't have my heart any more than the poor. It's just kind of a beautiful, that was a freebie. We'll just move along here. According to the tradition in that culture, both parties would then walk between the animals. Now understand, did I make it graphic enough? They were cut in half, like all their entrails, and, and they're like laid out, and you're walking down the middle, and there's a lot of squishiness. I don't need to get too graphic here, but it's gross. It stinks. Right? They would walk between the animals, graphically signifying that the party that failed the agreement would end up like those split-in-half animals. They don't make marriage contracts like that. <laughs> Maybe we would be better off if they did. We would have less divorces. I don't, I don't know, but this is a very, very, very serious covenant, right? You don't want to be the one breaking this covenant because it does not look good for you if you break this covenant. And then the craziest thing happened, finishing with verses 17 and 18. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now understand, Abraham was supposed to walk with God through those two pieces, and now you understand what's happening. God's doing it all by himself. He's signifying to Abram and his descendants and to us that he will take on all responsibility for this covenant. Even when we fail, he will cover us. He's the guarantor of the agreement, right? He's the big bucks behind it, if you want to put it that way. We can blow our obligation, but God never, ever, ever lets go of his obligations. So you're saying that God has to love me, that he's contractually committed? Is that what you're saying, Pastor Jerry? Yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. Um, the everlasting covenant has said... Right, was a demonstration or a proof, a proof, right, of God's great love for us. This is how much I love you and am committed to loving you. I will sign this contract and it will last forever. This isn't just for 60 days. This isn't for 90 days. Right? This isn't one of the things that we get in our world today. This is like a forever kind of thing. I'll take on all obligations, all risks, all liabilities. Listen, you are loved. You are greatly loved by your heavenly Father. This is the truth at the heart of the Christmas story. Show us your said, Lord, and grant us your salvation. See, and at Christmas time, we see that he did show us his steadfast love. Right? That, that crazy, enduring, everlasting, unbreakable, unfailing, steadfast, unconditional, utterly loyal kind of love, right, we see in the Christ child. Perfect representation of the Father's heart. Unconditional love. You are deeply, deeply loved. 
kind of love where if you had to remind someone, let's, let's say God, but you promised, right? You can guarantee that that promise is going to come true. 2,000 years ago, that promise that he had made to Abraham came true. And maybe you're still sitting on some promises and you need to know this morning that your Heavenly Father is not forgetting any kind of promises that he's ever made. And he is going to fulfill those promises. During the Christmas season, on Christmas Day, we celebrate the biggest promise that he delivered on, his steadfast love. Bow your heads. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your son representing your steadfast love never ending enduring unfailing utterly loyal kind of love father we we struggle with that but father you continue to show us you celebrate with us when we do and and you forgive us when we don't but you never ever stop loving us father thank you for your your son Jesus Christ, that we celebrate this season and the absolute crazy, over-the-top kind of love that he represents. Thank you, Father. In your son's name we pray. Amen.